0: Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 2. As we move on now in our study of Paul's letter to a young minister, which was designed to help Timothy and the church itself know how we ought to behave in the household of God. That's the main thrust of the book, a reason for it. Chapter 1 was about the importance of, of the gospel. And sound teaching, or, or sound doctrine, which just means life-giving, health-giving, uh, broken-bone-mending teaching. Now, in chapter 2, uh, we begin a new section of the book, which talks about our gathering together in public worship, and especially our prayers together, and the attitude of our hearts as we gather in prayer. So let me invite you to consider... Uh, now, first Timothy chapter two, one to seven, and to consider uh, the state of our own hearts. Hear now the word of our God. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We need you tonight. Come and be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. The main subject here is prayer. Now, he says a lot of other things, uh, but some words about prayer from Leonard Ravenhill have pricked my heart uh, for years, and every time I read them, they trouble my conscience (laughs) because I stink at praying, as so many Christians do. It goes like this. The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. People who are not praying are playing. The ministry of preaching is open to a few. The ministry of praying is open to every child of God. Tithes may build the church, but tears will give it life. In the matter of effective praying, never Have so many left so much to so few. Uh, Boy, that that will tear you up when you think about what a great responsibility and privilege it is to have access to God. Now, the point of this is not to lay a load of guilt on every Christian here. We have boldness and access to God not because we're good prayers, but through Jesus. And we have forgiveness in his name we should say, Lord, teach me to pray. Uh, Paul addresses three issues in prayer here tonight. I want to highlight. Um, he says that we ought to be praying. That's the first thing. He says who we ought to be praying for. That's the second thing. And he says why we should do so. And he goes on at great length about that. And that's where we'll spend half our time. Three things. That we ought to pray. Who we ought to pray for. And why. We ought to do so. So let's start at verse 1 with the first thing where Paul says Christians ought to be praying together in public worship. This is the first thing he says. I urge then that supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's where he starts. I say this is about public worship, because if you'll just scan your eyes down real quickly to verse 8, he reiterates there the theme of prayer, and it's explicit there that he has in view men and women gathering together in uh, public together. So here he, he doesn't just have in view our private prayer, though this is a great subject for us to be praying about in our closet, but prayers together in worship. Because the church is essentially a worshiping and praying community. Now it's often said, we often hear that the church's priority task is evangelism. But that isn't really true. As many others have noted, worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because love for God is the first commandment, and love for neighbor is the second And partly because long after the church's evangelism task has been completed, God's people will continue to stand before his throne and worship him. As John Piper put it, missions exists because worship doesn't. In other words, the point of seeing people embrace the gospel is to see them begin to worship the God of the gospel. And so in our worship, because the church is a worshiping community, Paul says praying ought to be a significant, a very significant part of our service. There's something wrong with a worship service, and I have led these in the past, that has 20 minutes of singing, 10 minutes of announcements to really get you to do something, and 30 minutes of teaching with no or almost no prayer. Singing is commanded in the Bible, and we ought to, as are reading the scripture and preaching the gospel and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those things are all commanded, but we must not neglect this other important priority, is what Paul says, in which we speak to God and lift up all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. My house, Jesus says, as the prophets did, and he reiterates, my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all peoples, for all nations, says the Lord. And the early church, we know, in Acts chapter 2, devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, the Lord's supper, but they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, to be sure, we need the Lord to teach us how to pray. And our flesh is resistant to prayer. Mine is as resistant to it as yours is. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is Weak, And so we need the help of the Holy Spirit to pray. But we also need to be intentional about our praying, just as Paul here commands. We ought to pray together in public worship. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing we find in verses 1 and 2, when he tells us who we ought to be praying for, he says we ought to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Notice his language. Again, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions so all kinds of different kinds of prayer uh, for all kinds and different kinds of people including kings now why that example why single kings and those in authority out well I think in part because those might be the very people Christians are tempted not to pray for Remember the situation that that, uh, these people are in. Paul is writing to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, which is surrounded by lots of people uh, of the Roman population who worshiped all kinds of other deities. And who was the king of these people? Well, their king, their Caesar, was Nero at the time that this is written. The guy who, yes... Tortured Christians at parties for the delight of his guests, or at least his own morbid delight. And Paul says, We ought to pray for the king. And then, of course, there were also many Jewish people in Ephesus, and some of them had come to faith in Jesus, but some of them had not. And those that did not did not always take kindly to those who did, even members of the same household. And so you've got this perhaps relatively small group of Christians living in a world of neighbors who are either openly hostile or quietly disapproving of them. There's a persecuted minority here. And what would have been the temptation of the heart of a person in that situation? The temptation would be to hate your neighbor or to write them off. Uh, You know that Sometimes, what non Christians think about Christians is that Christians hate non Christians. That's what the impression we give is on occasion. That we think they are what is wrong with this world. That if we could just convert them or get rid of them, or if they would somehow otherwise go away, then the impression Christians leave is well, then all would be well. But if, and if that is our attitude, it is no wonder that sometimes non-Christians are suspicious of Christians. The true Christian attitude Paul has just mentioned of himself just before this, at the end of chapter one, when he says, "What's wrong with this world? I am is what is wrong with this world." Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul said. Uh, but but. I, Be that as it may, the temptation in the heart of the Christian is to say, God, blast them. If we say anything to God at all about them. And Paul says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to pray for them and even give thanks for them. And that is a timely message for us and for me. When everywhere we look in America, maybe we're tempted to think America is falling apart. I don't know if it is or it isn't. But maybe we think it's destroying itself. Maybe things are getting worse. Maybe things are getting better, and and in 20 years it'll be obvious to us that it is. I don't know. But maybe we think America is, our, our nation, where we live, is unrelentingly bent on saying no to God and his ways at every turn. And maybe we're tempted to be really mad at, I don't know, the president or the Supreme Court Or people in Hollywood who make movies, or university professors in certain places, not at JBU, Lord willing. But maybe we're tempted to say, they are really the big problem. And maybe we're just tempted a little bit in our hearts to grow really kind of cold towards people because of that. And to have our hearts turn away from them in disgust to say, that's it, I'm done, I don't care anymore. I am not interested anymore. And the Lord says to us, but I'm interested. And I still care. And I want my people to care about what I care about and even to pray for those people. Even kings. Even Nero. This is what Paul says. What is the goal of this prayer for people in positions of power and authority? He tells you the goal here is that we might live uh, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's not just saying pray for their salvation, though we ought, but he's also saying pray for their performance in their position of leadership, that they would rule or govern in such a way that the result would be Peace, justice, stability in society. Uh, Because when society breaks down, when leaders don't protect their people from the ravages of war, when leaders don't establish order within society of a certain measure, then people can't live freely, they can't live safely, and that hurts even Christians, and it becomes very difficult to live a normal Christian life. We have refugees fleeing the Middle East on uh, boat after boat in every way that they can, and it makes it difficult. And so it is one basic benefit of good government to create the conditions in which people are free to worship God. And Paul says, pray for those leaders. And so here we learn just a bit of an aside. It is the duty of the state to protect the church. And it is the duty of the church to pray for the state. And in this way, each should help the other fulfill its God-given role in society. Now. Now. Uh, Paul says, uh, we then ought to pray even for kings and all who are in authority. I was reading uh, about a guy named Joe Bailey uh, who died in 1986, but he was a writer and editor. And he tells of driving his two sons uh, to school early on in the Watergate scandal back when Nixon was president. And one of the boys was a teenager and one of the boys was a pre-teenager and the news on the car radio was all about the White House tapes and the possible impeachment of the president of the United States. And the boys were, he says, already developing sort of a cynicism about politicians. And so he says before he opened the door to let the boys out at school, he, he just said, boys, let's pray together. And he says he, um, he prayed for what was happening in Washington and asked God to bring truth to light to make corruption come to the surface, to judge the guilty and protect the innocent. And later on, he wrote, looking bad, I was glad that I I played a a part, an infinitesimal part, but a part in the resolution of Watergate by turning to a judge greater than the Senate or the federal court. We know that out of Watergate came the conversion of one of its conspirators, Chuck Colson, who ended up himself in prison but also converted and who came out of prison and founded Prison Fellowship, a ministry that still exists, ministering in prisons all over the world, ministering to them the gospel. Good came out of even that evil and in part because of people who pray. Paul says, pray for your leaders. You don't have a political clout. That's okay. You could pray even for kings, because the king's hand is in the heart of the Lord. And he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Who knows, dear friends, what God might be willing to do with just your prayer in the life of another person. So these are the kinds of people. We're to pray for all kinds of people, he says, even kings. Now, why should Christians pray? ...for all kinds of people. That's verses 3-7 through seven in the bulk of what he says. Uh, a good parenting skill, uh, and, I, and I know better about what the skill is than the practice of it in my own life, of course... Is, ...is telling our children not just what they should do, but all the more why they should do it. So that they'll grow up and internalize the reasons and the motivations behind the behavior... And not just blindly follow some course of action because long ago daddy said that's what we do. And as in parenting, so in discipleship here, Paul spends the bulk of his time on why we should pray for all kinds of people. And let me have, there are three, I think, major reasons that leap out here uh, in verses 3 through 7. Uh, because of, we should do this because of God's heart. We should do this because of who God is and what he does, his, his being and his doing. And we should do this because of God's calling in ministry. Three things. Uh, Number one, in verses 3 through 4, Paul says we should do this because it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul reflects on the heart of our God in heaven his heart for the people of the world. And he says you ought to pray for them because God cares about them. The breadth of our praying ought to be as broad as the heart of God is. He is the kind of God whose disposition toward people is a desire to see them blessed and not cursed. For God, John 3 16, you know, God sent his one and only son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved Through him, it was God's desire in sending his son that his son would be a great blessing and people would be blessed. And when we pray for people, even our enemies, we are loving them like God loves even his enemies. We are acting like our father in heaven. He is the kind of God, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, who causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. He is the kind of God who in Jesus weeps over Jerusalem even as they reject him. And he knows they're going to put him to death. He is the kind of God who does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, says Ezekiel, or, the, or God through the prophet. He is not some ogre in the sky. That loves to see people ruining their lives and then loves to see them go to hell for it. Though he is the kind of God who will punish the unjust justly, but he offers them salvation in Jesus. His real delight is not the death of the wicked even the angels rejoice when one sinner turns and when one is who is lost is found it's a celebration in heaven by god himself and his angels and so paul is paul is teaching us here uh, he's putting in different words the old testament teaching the old testament desire that one day the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea and that the nations would come streaming into jerusalem to worship the messiah promised not just to israel but through them to the whole world this is what he's saying here god has this worldwide priority and so should his people And so we ought to be known as a people who pray for, we ought to aim to be people who pray for all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, for the peace and prosperity of this city and our nation, for those in civil government, for leaders like Barack Obama, Asa Hutchinson, John Mark Turner, for people running for office that we like, and for people running for office we have no intention ever to vote for. We should pray for all of them. We ought to pray as well for our troops and those who fight the enemies of our nation, both for the troops and those enemies. We ought to pray for law enforcement personnel, but also the lawbreakers they pursue. And as one commentator suggested, we ought to pray for the poor and the hungry, the rich and the satisfied the employed and the unemployed, the educated and the illiterate, the poised and the awkward. For our friends, our neighbors, and our enemies, we are to be people who pray for all people because no one is beyond the sovereign reach of our loving creator God who desires to see them blessed in Christ. Yet how provincial we are how parochial. We think of ourselves in our prayers and our loved ones, perhaps, and we rarely lift our, our eyes to the needs of others, let alone actually lift their needs to the Lord. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the foremost sinner in this, in this room. But what God is saying, do this because this is my heart. This is who I am. This is what I care about. You care about it too, my dear children. Now the second thing is this. We ought to do this because there is no other God or mediator for anyone to appeal to but our God and His Christ. There's no other place to go. There's no other being and there's no other work that gives them access into the throne room of that being than God and Christ. Verses 5-6, through he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, The man Christ Jesus. So that if the peoples of the world don't have this God for their God, what other hope do they have? Paul says they have no other hope because there is no other hope. And I realize people will say, as the illustration has been used by many, you know, people will say, well, how can Paul say this? I mean, doesn't he know that God is, people will say, like the elephant, right? Whom the blind blind men encounter. One blind man discovers the trunk of the elephant and says, well, this is, a, this is a long, thick snake. And another blind man, you know, encounters the actual leg of the elephant and says, no, this is a, a great tree trunk. And the other blind man encounters the side and belly of the elephant and says, no, this is a strong, flat wall. <laughs> Each describes a part of the truth, so it goes, but none knows the whole truth and isn't that how it is, people will say, with every religion. No one really knows what God is like, but every religion just describes some part of him. How can Paul say this? Now, what's, what's wrong with that illustration, if there's something wrong with it? Well, it assumes the person telling it knows everything about the true God. It's told from the perspective of someone who is not blind telling everybody else they're blind and they only see part of the truth that this person sees the whole of. How could you know each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? So in an effort to say no one religion can know the truth, it assumes it can it assume, assumes an exclusive truth about God not known by anyone else. And so it's, it's self-defeating. It's bunk. You can turn that illustration right back on them. Paul can say this then, not because of some superior wit or intelligence on his part or spirituality, but because this is a truth that has been revealed to him by God himself. God self-reveals and he tells us i am the lord and there is no other i am god and there is none like me says the prophet isaiah about him and there is not only only one god but there is only the bible says right here only one mediator a mediator what does a mediator do a mediator represents both parties in a dispute or settles a dispute between both parties as as jove expressed it If only, he said, there was someone to arbitrate between us, he says to God, to lay his hand upon us both. And Jesus comes and is the answer to Job's longing. He lays his hand, as it were, upon God and upon man because he is the man, Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God and Lord. He is both. As Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the father except through me and this God he says this mediator is the only one who can save us the only way we can be saved how is that notice his language by ransom verse five there's one God there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time by paying the ransom Payment in our place on our behalf to free us from bondage to sin and death and judgment. He's the substitute ransom in place of others and for this he is worshiped in heaven in Revelation 5 as as the angels and archangels, the elders and the living creatures and all the saints gather before the throne. They say, worthy are you, Lamb of God, because by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, And tongue, and nation, and language. He ransomed people for God from among every nation. So there is no kind of person we ought not pray for. Now, why is Paul saying all this? Because there isn't one God of Arabs, and a different God of Africans, and a different God of Americans. And because there isn't a God of the Hindus who saves the Hindus in the Hindu way, and a God of the Muslims who saves the Muslims in the Muslim way, and a A God of Buddhists who saves Buddhists in a Buddhist way, but there is one God who saves anybody who is saved in his way by the ransom payment of the one mediator, the Lord Jesus. And if we don't pray for the world, what hope does the world have, is Paul's point. Their hope is this God and Savior. And so he's building an argument here, not only... Uh, not only because of god 's own heart, but because of who God is and what he 's done in Jesus, but in third reason is this: um, we should pray for all all kinds of people, because God calls his ter- church to bring the gospel to all kinds of people. Verse seven for this, I was appointed Paul says paul, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle I'm telling the truth i 'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Now, a couple of things here. paul That's a weird statement for an apostle to make, especially writing to Timothy, I'm not lying. Uh, Why does he say that? Well, Timothy's not the only one who's going to hear this, of course. The Ephesians are going to hear it, we're going to hear it. And it's a lot like you might say something, uh, when you're you're talking to somebody about something you know they're going to struggle to believe you about, you might preface it by saying, now I'm being totally serious here, or "I, I kid you not. Or I promise, what I'm about to say is the truth, right? Um, You want to help them believe you when you say it. And so he's preparing them for these words. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. Because he knows that some of them are not going to believe that the Apostle Paul Saul the Jew, the persecutor of Christians, would give a rip about Christians. Or that God would call him to be the ambassador to Christians. And to the world, to the Gentile world, in the name of Christ. He's the, un, he's the most unlikely candidate in the history of the world to be the ambassador of Jesus to Gentiles. He made his name and reputation persecuting Christians who were trying to bring the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. And this is the guy God called to do it. He confronted him, he converted him, and he called him. And so Paul says, this is my ministry to the Gentiles. Of course we ought to pray for all kinds of people. (laughs) And how could, after all, Paul not say this? He was the kind of people who persecuted Christians like Nero did. How could we not pray for the king? And so uh, we have no, if we have no interest in the progress of this preaching and no heart to pray for it, then perhaps we have not understood in our own hearts the wideness of God's mercy and the depths of his grace. Because those who have begun to know the riches of the kindness of Jesus begin to want others to know that same kindness themselves. But if we're honest, we struggle with such inclusiveness in God's grace. A colleague of mine in ministry I have deep respect for says he remembers hearing the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer who was convicted and imprisoned. He committed all kinds of atrocities with people both before and after they were killed by him. And Dahmer, as the story goes, was waiting in death row and he was sent a 12-week Bible study by a woman who had been praying for him. And to everybody's great surprise, Dahmer completed the course, and after doing so, wrote the woman a letter, thanked her, and wanted to know if he could find out more. And it was at about that point as well that a part-time prison chaplain began spending time with Dahmer and continued to do so right up to the very end. And this chaplain says to this day that he is convinced that Dahmer came to the place where he recognized his sin and his guilt and made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my colleague, reflecting on that, having heard that story, confesses that when he first heard it, his response was to be highly skeptical and doubtful. As far as I was concerned, he says, this man had not made a genuine response. He was just hoping that he could take out some fire insurance, so to speak, before he died. That was my attitude, he says. But then I had to deal with that, you see. I had to ask myself why I struggled so much to believe that such a person like Jeffrey Dahmer might actually respond in genuine fashion to the gospel. And more to the point, why God would be involved in saving such a person as him. And as I examined my own heart, says my colleague, I began to see that my struggle with the fact that God might actually forgive a serial killer stemmed from a lot of other things. It stemmed from the fact that I forget frequently that this world is not all there is, that Jesus is coming back, and that all books will then be balanced. It stems from the fact of my own hardness of heart, not wanting to forgive or accept those whom God has forgiven. It stems from these crazy thoughts, he says, that still enter my head that, head that quote, some people just don't deserve forgiveness as if anyone does and it stems from this perverse practice i have of imagining that somehow my own sin renders me less culpable before god and so he says i don't think i'm alone in that struggle and he's not We struggle to believe God desires to save all kinds of people, that his disposition and heart is to see people blessed and not cursed, to see people repent and be saved. And so we struggle to pray this way, and so Paul has to persuade us with these arguments. And if we can't pray for people whose actions make us want to spit, perhaps we don't ourselves appreciate the grace of a mediator, who prays for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are far more gracious and kind and generous and open-handed and long-suffering and patient than any of your people has ever been or will be. And we pray... Uh, that you would bless us to be more like-minded with you and give us a heart uh, for the world, a heart for our neighbor, a heart for even our enemies, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.